these guys. You can take a seat. Actually, it was so great. I just wanted to get up there and join you. I just wanted to join the band, man. Uh, as Chris mentioned, my name is Brad Morris. It's great to be with you this morning. I know it's really traditional to say that and how much of a privilege it is and an honor, but it really is true. It's especially true. Not that the other people that say it are lying, but, but for me, it's really, really true because we feel a great connection to Harvest. Uh, my wife, Emily, actually became a Christian at Camp Minioe with uh, Ted and Lindsay Duncan. Uh, I was cared for and, and mentored by Chris Shipley when we were together with uh, Power to Change. It used to be Campus Crusade. Uh, and we were married uh, uh, and coached through uh, Harvest Churches, so we really appreciate being here. Thanks for your welcome. Uh, as Chris said, we planted a church in the neighborhood called The Plateau in Montreal in 2014. It's a, it's a fun neighborhood. It's huge. It's about 100,000 people. It's mostly filled with uh, artists and thinkers and students. And um, demographically, it's actually the least, according to the census from last year, it's actually the least religious place in the whole province. It's got by far the highest number of people that identify as agnostic or atheist or not religious. Um, actually, if, if you're here this morning, you're visiting, and you identify as atheist, agnostic, atheist, or, or non-religious, or you're just not sure what you believe, um, really glad to have you with us. I really hope that what we're going to talk about this morning is helpful to you. I hope that it makes you think and inspires you. Please feel free to come and ask questions if you have some afterwards, or yell at me because you really didn't like some things. That's what my church does. They, they yell at me a lot afterwards. So you're going to be very much in line with what I, I typically go through. Um, I know what you guys are all thinking. Uh, you know, I'm the pastor of a French church in Montreal. You're all thinking, man, where did this guy learn English? Like, he's so good. Like, he's almost as good as I am, you know? He's terrific. Uh, the sad reality is that I'm actually an Anglophone. And so this is the easy part. It's the rest of my life that's hard. This part here is great, the English, but everything else in my life, my kids' school, uh, our church plant, everything else is French. So um, we are still learning French. It's going quite well. But uh, no, I don't have a secret to learning English in 10 days that I can give you, unfortunately. I uh, don't think I'd be quite good at that at all. Um, but because I'm an English speaker natively, that actually presents a bit of a challenge for this morning. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever experienced this, but it's often when we're in a place where we don't feel as dependent on God that we're actually kind of in trouble. You know, every time I, I preach or teach at our church, it's in French. Every time I'm like, if you don't show up, Lord, I am going to be a complete useless tool right now for my church. So I really, really need you. And yet when it's in English, it's kind of like, okay, God, you can go help that guy. He, or maybe they need it. I'm good, you know. And I would never actually say that, but I think sometimes we can feel it. It's when we're in a place where we don't feel as desperately dependent that it actually be kind of dangerous. So in light of that, let me pray for us. Uh, but not just in light of that, in light of the fact that we're going to look at a, a really beautiful text and we're going to need God's spirit to speak to us if it's going to do us any good. Okay, so let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you that everything we just sang is true. That's amazing. Our sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross. These aren't just words. This isn't just a poem. This is truth that we sing together. Thank you that you've done that for us. And that for all who unite themselves to you and love you and follow you, that's true for them this morning. That we come before you, no matter what's happened this week, yesterday, this morning, we come before you as children, welcomed, gladly welcomed at your table before your throne. You love us. Thank you that that is true of us this morning. And we pray that you would, as a father to his children, speak to us this morning. We want to hear your voice and your voice alone. And we know you have something for us, and that's what we want to hear. 
So would you open our hearts and would you, by your spirit, speak to us in such a way that uh, we are transformed and that we are changed different from when we came in this morning. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, we did a series uh, over Christmas at our church in Montreal. Uh, you you got to do a Christmas series every year, right? But we did something a little atypical. Um, we did a series called The Dark Side of Christmas. And you guys are like, man, I'm glad I wasn't there for that. That sounds awful. Like, I want to talk about joy and peace. Like, Brad, aren't you, like, legally obligated to talk about joy and peace at Christmas? Like, there seems to be a problem with the title of your series. But we, we, we did it because we realized there's a lot of things that can happen around Christmas, things that are already in our lives but are kind of highlighted. They are, are just extremely... Uh, put on our radar like never before on Christmas, and we want to talk about some of those things. And one of those things is in the text we're going to read this morning. If you have a Bible with you, uh, Isaiah 55 is where I'm going to be reading from. Uh, I don't know what the page number will be. If you just open up the Bible in half and go a little bit forward, you'll probably stumble into Isaiah. It's a pretty long book. We're going to be in chapter 55, and I'm going to read for us the first seven verses. Isaiah 55, verses 1 to 7. God is speaking to the prophet Isaiah, and he says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good. And delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples. A leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know. And a nation that did not know you shall run to you. Because of the Lord your God. And of the Holy One of Israel. For he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. This text is about a whole lot of things, but one of the things that it's talking about is pleasure. And our relationship with pleasure, which as I said, is something that we deal with every day, but particularly at Christmas, we are prone to overdoing pleasures, all sorts of pleasures. We overindulge, and not just once a year, but oftentimes throughout the year we struggle with this. And so as we look at this text, I want us to look and see three things that I think God might have us know this morning about this. First of all, we're going to look at the nature of overindulgence. What does this mean? How does it affect us? But secondly, what's the danger of overindulgence? What are the effects it does on our lives? Why is it something that is so problematic, but then thankfully, lastly, what remedy does God give us here in this text for overindulgence? So very simple, the nature, the danger, and the remedy of uh, overindulgence. Uh, You might know if you're familiar with the Bible, the word overindulgence is not necessarily in the Bible. No, the Bible uses a different term for it, a kind of old school, archaic term. The Bible uses the word gluttony. And if you're thinking that you know what gluttony means, let me challenge you a little bit because it's actually about a whole lot more than food. 
When we hear gluttony, maybe we think that it's about an excess of food or of drink or whatever. But biblically, the picture is a whole lot bigger than that. It's not just having excess food and, and drink. It's actually having excess of anything. Biblically, gluttony is, is, is overindulging in Instagram. It's, it's overindulging in Netflix, in shopping, in sleep, in video games. It's an excess of anything. And so that's why a, a good medieval thinker, Thomas Aquinas, he defined gluttony like this. He said, gluttony denotes not just any desire of eating and drinking, but any inordinate desire. I like that definition. An inordinate desire. That, that's what overindulgence is. It's to always want more of a particular pleasure. It's to find yourself always saying, ah, just one more, unable to stop. It, it's consuming to the point of, of regret. Consuming to the point where it hurts. It's the complete opposite of self-control. If you have it on a spectrum, you've got self-control here and overindulgence here. To overindulge is to lack self-control. And so since it's in the Bible, this is certainly not a new thing, but I do think that our generation probably struggles with this more than any other ever because we, more than any other generation, are overwhelmed with options for pleasure more than any other generation. Think of it, entertainment and food. We have everything we want. Even the greatest kings in history, the greatest emperors could not, in their kingly pajamas in their bed, like have a theater troupe perform. Uh, this stinks. And just execute them all and then get a new one in. And that's no good either. Like we can do, well, not the executing part, but we can do the, the changing part, right? We can get anything. And that poses a problem. We end up getting too much of it. Do you ever feel like there's just too many entertainment options out there? Like you can't keep up? Uh, I, I looked this up because I feel that way too sometimes. So 15 years ago, there were 182 scripted television programs available for us. This year, there were 487. It's like 300 more. That's crazy. How do you keep up with that? Well, you can't. I guess the point is that you're not supposed to keep up. Netflix spent $8 billion on new content this year alone. We have an unbelievable access to pleasure. And we consume too much of it. So then what's the solution? Is the solution to avoid pleasure? Is the problem with all this pleasure itself? And I think it's an important question to ask. Does true spirituality, does following God require that we abstain from pleasure? And some of you might find that question pretty basic, but realize that a number of religions teach this. And, and many, 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 many people, maybe yourself included, think that this is what Christianity teaches. That to follow Jesus is to abstain from pleasure. I don't want to put all the blame on them because a lot of Christians have had a hard time struggling with the relationship between pleasure and their faith, but particularly some of the medieval Christians were really bad at this. There was something that they practiced, they didn't invent it, but something called asceticism, this philosophical, theological response to this question, which was basically the idea that pleasure equals bad, pain equals good. If you want to get close to God, you want to be really spiritual, you got to do painful things because that's what pleases God. So when you read in history, for example, this one guy, he decided to live for six months in a disease-ridden swamp. Guy sees this, he says, hey, that's nothing. This other guy decides he's going to sleep without lying down for 40 years. That's commitment, man, 40 years? 
And then the granddaddy of them all, my favorite, well, I don't know my favorite, it's a weird term, but this guy, Simeon the Stylite, he decided to build a, a column 20 meters in the air, and on that column he was perched for 30 years, exposed to rain and sun and cold, and uh, he put a ladder for his disciples to climb to bring him food and remove his waist, and he was so scared of lacking faith and climbing down that he attached himself to the top of the column with a rope. And over time, as you can imagine, you're going to love this, the rope gets embedded in his flesh, okay? And it starts to produce sickness and sores. And, uh, and so what happens eventually is, well, here, I'll, I'll read it to you. It says it much better than me. The worms lodged in his wounds and multiplied. The worms would fall from his body, and Simeon would pick them up and put them back in his sores. And he would say to the worms, eat what God has given you. That's beautiful, eh? That's a lovely little Christmas image. Harvest, you guys should put that on your Instagram. That's, uh, I mean, it's not my quote, but that's beautiful. Amen. No, no. That is extreme. And, and, and my wife is like, Brad, again with Simeon the stylite? Like, she's heard this so many times. I keep going back to it because I feel like even, that's, even if it's a little extreme, it kind of encapsulates how many of us view or feel, God probably acts. Like, no, no, pain is good. You've got to suffer. Pleasure is bad. The problem with that is the whole Bible. <laughs> kind of indicates the reverse, that God is actually the one who created pleasure. That God is the author of pleasure. We have a whole book in the Bible called the Songs of Solomon, which is exclusively, I will say primarily, about the beauty of sexual love. That's crazy. Hard time fitting that in with the stuff I just quoted you. But Christians have had a hard time wrestling with this. So there's this another medieval guy, a pope, who said it's a sin to eat or to drink just for the sole purpose of satisfying the palate. But wait, how can that be true? The Bible talks about heaven in very food and drink terms. Are you saying there's something that we would do on earth that's sinful, but then all of a sudden in heaven it's perfect and permissible? No, there's something wrong here. And what's wrong is that the Bible teaches that God made pleasure, he made it pleasurable for a reason, and he gives it as a good gift. Later on in the Bible, in a, in a letter called uh, 1 Timothy, Paul wrote to one of his followers, 1 Timothy 6, it says, God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. If you're wondering why you have like 10,000 taste buds, that's why. Because God designed your body and eye body so that we would enjoy food, not just eat we're full and then just move on to something else. If that was what he wanted, we, we'd eat styrofoam or something. That would just be the sole purpose of eating. But no, he made it so that we would enjoy it. So no, I don't think the problem is pleasure at all. The problem is not that we're looking for pleasure, it's that we're looking at it in the wrong ways. We're looking for it to such a degree that we consume too much of it, but also we're looking in the wrong place. And that's the, and that's the point of this text. That's why Isaiah asks that question. God, through Isaiah, in verse 2, says, Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? You see, he's making a distinction. He's saying, God's saying there's a type of pleasure that doesn't deeply satisfy. There's a type of pleasure that doesn't deeply nourish, and there's one that does. And our problem with overindulgence is that we're focusing too much on the wrong kind of pleasure. In fact, we're settling for small pleasures. That's what it means to overindulge. But maybe you're thinking, okay, so I had a little too much ice cream last night. Fine. Is it really that big of a deal? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I really do think it is. 
there's a huge danger to overindulgence that I'm not convinced that we realize. If you're familiar with the story of the Bible, you know that it begins with Adam and Eve, God created our first parents, who, when they decided to reject God, brought curse and sin and disease and everything into our world. But if you think about what led them to decide to disobey God, think about it. Adam and Eve had access to every pleasure imaginable, right? They had everything they could have ever wanted, except one day they decided, what? It wasn't enough. One day, they felt like they wanted more. They had an inordinate desire within them. So you see, this idea of overindulgence and gluttony, it's actually at the very root of our relationship with God and, and why we've chosen to not walk with him and instead make lives, make our lives the way we want. So what is the danger of overindulgence? What does it do to us? Well, one of the things it does is it punishes us. When we overindulge in something, it punishes us. And I think every single person in this room has experienced that, watching your favorite show on Netflix, and then suddenly one show to the next to the next, and all of a sudden it's 4 a.m. You know, Netflix doesn't help either because it, it automatically starts the next show, right? There's no like, would you like to watch it? You're watching right now. And then you're like, oh, well, I, I, I can't help it. It's not me. And then it's 4 a.m. You work at 7. Your day's shot, you know? You're irritable and horrible for the rest of the day. Or maybe you're wiser than that. You don't do nighttime. You just do daytime viewing. So then your Saturday is just, you just totally binge on something. And then by the end of the day, you've just spent it all watching TV. And then you get up and you're like, what day is it? Where am I? Like, what's my name? Whose house is this? Like, you know that, like, that fog experience from too much of TV or, or video games or whatever? Or maybe even something as simple as sleep. What happens when we sleep too much? It's paradoxically, we're tired, right? You can, you can feel like you didn't even get any sleep if you have too much. There's this crazy principle at work here. It's that every single pleasure that we have on offer, if we have too much of it, it punishes us. This isn't a human principle. In Proverbs 25, 16, it's exactly what we read. If you have found honey, eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill of it and vomit it out. Have you ever vomited Netflix? Yeah, ever vomited Instagram? This is what happens when we go too hard on some of these things. And I was really struck by the comments of uh, Derek Kidner. He's a theologian who wrote a commentary in the book of Proverbs. So as I was prepping this, I came across these comments. I thought this was so sharp. He says, since Eden, the, the garden, the place where Adam and Eve were placed, since Eden, man has wanted the last ounce out of life, as though beyond God's enough lay ecstasy, not nausea. You know? We think if we go beyond the line, we're going to get more pleasure, we're going to get ecstasy, but then in the end, what we realize is we just kind of feel sick after. So overindulging leads us to be punished by it, but also, funny enough, it also leads us to be remarkably unrested in our lives. You know, we're, we're constantly tired, right? We're constantly worn down and exhausted. I think one of the reasons why is because we think that these pleasures will produce much more rest than they will. And we are not very good at knowing what will give us true rest. I, I think our generation are, is a terrible generation of resters. I don't think we really know how to rest. I was so struck by this line that I read in a great book by Andy Crouch. It's called TechWise Family. Uh, I'd encourage you to pick up a copy or or read some quotes about it online. In the book, Andy Crouch mentions that there's a difference 
between leisure and rest. And, and just that idea was so powerful for me. So much leisure activities don't actually lead to rest. Well, some of them do, but some of them don't. And so I'll spend a whole day on leisure or on whatever, and then at the end of the day, I'm more tired than I was before the day started. We think that because one pleasure, maybe two episodes leads to a certain amount of rest, but then you're like, hmm, if two episodes makes me feel a little rested, maybe 20 will make me feel really rested, and then we find out it's not true. I wonder how much of our tiredness, our constant feeling just crushingly tired is because we don't know how to properly rest. And we're looking to leisure to give rest to our souls, but we're finding that it's not the case. So overindulging these pleasures punishes us. It, it leaves us feeling remarkably unrested. But I actually think the worst danger of it is one that maybe we're not as familiar with or that we don't even realize as much. You see, in this text, God describes his pleasure, the pleasure that comes from God, in really, really visual, vivid terms, right? He uses images like a delicious wine or rich food. And he says that being in my presence, experiencing my joy, is like enjoying great wine and great food, except infinitely better. Infinitely better. I don't know how many of you guys here are, are foodies or you, you know, wine connoisseurs, but if you are, he's saying, God is saying, my pleasures are infinitely better than even the best that you could find. And this is the whole point of the metaphor. God's saying, there's the pleasures of the world, and there's the pleasures that come from God, and the pleasures from the world are incredible. I mean, God made them. God doesn't make junk pleasures. He makes the best pleasures. So God said, oh, I, amazing pleasures are offered, but the ones that I give are so much better. The ones from my presence, from delighting in me, are so much better. And I think for some of us, it's kind of hard maybe to visualize that or it's hard for us to imagine that. And so I like going to the experts, to those who have experienced that. And one of the best guys for that is a man named David. He loved God. And he was a man in the Old Testament who followed God. And he wrote a lot of songs about his relationship with God, what we call Psalms. And in Psalm 4, listen to what David says. He's talking about what others have experienced. And he says, God, you have put more joy in my heart than those others have when their grain and their wine abound. I love that. He's saying, oh yeah, there's lots of joy in grain and wine, but I have more than that in God's presence. I, I, have, I have more than that. Nothing wrong with grain and wine, but in God's presence, I have something so much better. But see, the problem is when we consume grain and wine to excess, maybe not grain so much, but the pleasures of our world, and we consume them to excess, the interesting thing is it makes us less responsive to the pleasures of God. When we consume the pleasures of this world to excess, it makes us almost like hardened to the pleasures of God. We don't perceive them in the same way. We, we don't find pleasure in them in the same way. It's almost like too much of the pleasures of the world has a dulling effect on the pleasures of God. Overindulging in the pleasures of the world dulls our heart to its capacity to perceive these pleasures. I'll give you an example. Many of you have probably experienced, as I've experienced, amazing joy and amazing moments of delight in praying to God. 
moments of connection with your Father in heaven, moments of prayer that have an exceedingly beautiful delight. But here's the interesting thing. After you spend your afternoon binging a whole season of Netflix, it's like you can't perceive that anymore. All of a sudden, the, the pleasure of prayer with God just doesn't feel very pleasurable at all. You're like, I don't want that. It's because our capacity for true pleasure, for pleasure in God, is, is diminished. And I think it's even worse when you have a lifestyle, as so many of us do, myself included sometimes, we can have a lifestyle of binging on the pleasures of this world. And so cumulatively what the effect is, is we, our capacity for pleasure in God is, is not just diminished, sometimes it's eliminated entirely. There's a great example of this in the Old Testament. In the book of Deuteronomy, God has brought his people, or is about to bring his people into the promised land. And he's describing what this beautiful land looks like, okay? Again, beautiful, vivid terms. He says it's a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates. It's a land of olive trees and honey. It's a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing. Unbelievable. That's the most beautiful thing ever. But a little warning. God gives them a little warning after this, and he says, when you've eaten your full, when your silver and gold is multiplied, take care lest you forget the Lord your God. Why? Why would that be the warning? Oh, because God knows that too much of these things, consuming these things to excess, has a dulling effect on the pleasures of God. Too much earthly pleasures leads us to forget heavenly pleasures. And so God is saying, be careful don't consume too much of it. It will leave you incapable of perceiving true beauty. It'll, it'll leave you incapable of perceiving true joy. It will leave us like, like somebody who goes to Mount Everest and is just on their phone in front of it. You have one of the greatest things on our entire planet in front of you, and we're just on our phone doing something ridiculous. That's what God is saying happens when we consume to excess. Would you allow me to put this into different words, more striking words maybe? If the idea of an hour of prayer and contemplation of the beauty and majesty of God seems kind of boring compared to a video game or Instagram, it's most likely because our spiritual senses have become way too dulled by too many inferior pleasures. Because God's saying, no, this is actually better. And if we can't see it or perceive it, it's a problem. It's kind of like, I don't know if you've ever tried eating good food after brushing your teeth. It's disgusting. I don't care what meal you have in front of you. If you've just brushed your teeth, it's disgusting. Why, Dr. Brad, would you like to tell us? Well, yes, of course. I'm, uh, no, I just looked this up. It's because in your toothpaste, in most toothpaste, there's like a, there's a chemical, and what it does is it, it, it takes all your sweet receptors in your mouth, and it, it, it like shuts them down, it dulls them, and it takes all your bitterness receptors and it heightens them. So no matter what you eat, after you brush your teeth, it tastes like garbage, because everything just tastes bitter, just tastes bad. I feel like that's what happens when we overindulge in the pleasures of this world, is we could find ourselves afterwards in front of God and the greatest pleasure imaginable, and we, and we look at it and we're like, nah, it just doesn't, doesn't taste good at all. It's not because there's a problem with it. It's a problem with what we've just been 
consuming. Not because these pleasures are bad, but because they're the wrong kind and they don't give what we desperately want. You might be familiar with an author, theologian, pastor named John Piper, who writes a lot on this subject. And on his book, The Pleasures of God, he challenges it even harder. He says, if you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it is not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It is because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world that your soul is stuffed with small things and there's no more room for the great. I think after that, we just say, ouch. You know, for how much that describes all of us. This is the problem with overindulging. It takes spectacular pleasures and makes them look paltry and small. Which is ironic because the way the pleasures of the world are designed is it's actually supposed to be a mechanism that pushes us towards God. After a really great meal or a really great show, you should just be like, you are a great film director. You are a great horticulturalist. You produce great pleasures. This is so good. Thank you, Lord. We did, we did a night at our church for some of our leaders, uh, uh, a wine and cheese night. And uh, it was great. We had one of the guys, one of the leaders in our church, he's actually a sommelier and he studied this. And so he gave us like the, the lowdown on every single note to look for in every wine and why this was great and why this was better and everything. And the best was at the end of the night, after he finished describing everything and we, we felt all pretentious and uh, looking down on everybody with our wine snobbery, at the end of the night, he just said something like, guys, isn't it amazing that God would create this? You know, look at all the varieties we have. Look at the, the, the taste buds, how it makes you taste it. It's so wonderful. And we actually had, in a sense, almost like a, a time of worship at the end, just thanking God for this great thing, you know? And, and that's the goal of any pleasures we have in life, is for it to produce joy and delight in God. But when we consume too much, it's the reverse effect. It punishes us. And it actually dulls our senses to the really good stuff. That's the danger. But there is a remedy. And I know what you're thinking. You're like, oh, Brad, I know the remedy. I'm a very wise person. It's moderation. It's moderation. We should be moderate people. Uh, look, it's not bad. I'm not going to say moderation is a bad idea. Lose my job, maybe. Moderation's fine. In fact, in Quebec, uh, the Quebecois have a really good expression for this. They say, trop c'est comme pas assez. Trop c'est comme pas assez. That means too much is as bad as not enough. So you don't want to have too little, but you don't have too much either. Moderation. Okay, here's the problem with moderation in my mind. It, it's, not like, it's not inspiring enough. It's not a great enough goal. You know, it sounds like a great thing, but what does moderation lead to? A nice balanced life. Okay? Which is fine, but when I find myself in front of the huge spread of food with the finest cheeses and meats and everything, and I'm tempted to go crazy, I don't know if a nice balanced life is enough to help me, you know? Or, or next summer, 2019, when the next season of Stranger Things comes out, and I have 10 episodes waiting for me, I don't know if a nice balanced life is going to be enough for me to go at this at a normal human pace. It's just not compelling enough. And, and the Bible, I think, agrees. Because what the Bible promises, what the Bible says is the remedy to this, 
is not just a nice balanced life. It says, no, if you want the cure to overindulging, you need to find superior pleasures. You need something way, way better. In fact, you need a life that's not balanced. You need a life that's very imbalanced in favor of superior pleasures. We need something way, way, way better. You see, my friends, the problem, according to this text, is that we're not full enough. It's like there's always room for more. That's why we're always saying, okay, just one more, just a little bit more, because we're perpetually not full. We're perpetually unsatisfied from the pleasures of the world, and so we're always looking for more. And so, sure, it's a self-discipline problem. Yeah, sure, it's a self-control problem, but more than anything else, this text is telling us it's a heart problem. It's way, way, way deeper. It is a heart problem. Because you see, a person who's deeply satisfied in the pleasures of God, the way this text is talking, doesn't really get that just one more desperate feeling. He doesn't need more. He can enjoy these things without overdoing it because he's already full. He's already deeply fulfilled. What does it look like to be deeply fulfilled with this type of rich food, with this type of delicious wine, these images? What does it look like to have that? Well, I'll give you an example from somebody that I want to emulate and where I would like to see more of this in my own life. Jonathan Edwards was a theologian in the 18th century, and he writes often about these moments that he has in his journals with God. I just want to read you a short excerpt from something that he experienced. He writes in one of his books, I very frequently used to retire into a solitary place for contemplation on divine things and secret conversation with God. I had many sweet hours there. I had then, at other times, the greatest delight in the Holy Scriptures, more than any other book whatsoever. Oftentimes in reading it, every word seemed to touch my heart. I seemed often to see so much light exhibited by every sentence and such a refreshing food communicated to me that I could not get along in reading, often dwelling long on one sentence to see the wonders contained in it. And yet almost every sentence seemed to be full of wonders. Wow. I, I want that. Uh, I love to eat. I would consider myself one of those foodies. I love to eat. I adore going to good restaurants with my wife. But I have never in my life left a restaurant saying, every bite seemed to touch my heart. I saw so much light exhibited by every bite of the beef tartare. I've never, that's not my review on Google afterwards, you know? I've really enjoyed it, but this guy's on another level, right? This is a, a depth of enjoyment and pleasure that is... I think, unfortunately, foreign to a lot of us. But it is the remedy for excess. You know? with, with that guy, Edwards, with what I just read you, can you imagine someone like that, like unable to shut off Netflix, and he's at four in the morning, oh, no, what are, I got to go till my fields now. Oh, shoot, what did I do? Like, I don't think so. I get the feeling this guy's really full and contented and doesn't experience that, that desperate for more sense. It's a beautiful thing, and it's the solution that's proposed. Here's the funny thing. This pleasure that Edwards was experiencing and that David was experiencing, it's actually the exception to what I said before. Remember before I said that every pleasure available will always punish us if we have too much of it? Well, except this one, right? The pleasures of God are the only ones that won't punish us for consuming too much. The joy of being in the presence of God will never punish you 
for consuming too much of it. So then how do we experience these things? How do we move from having too much of the world's pleasures to enjoying what God wants to offer us? Well, guys, I'm going to be honest. I'm a very realistic person. I'm not going to tell you there's a magic one, two, three formula or magic book, and in three days it goes away. For a lot of us, these are habits that we've developed over a lifetime, right? It takes time to kind of retrain our heart to find joy in the right things. But one of the things that Jesus offers us in order to do that is this, again, this old sort of strange-sounding concept of what the Bible calls fasting, And fasting biblically is a lot different than maybe modern fasting where we just abstain from food for various reasons. Biblical fasting is not so much a practice of of abstinence as it is a practice of replacement. Because it's the practice of instead of enjoying something, we replace it with a superior pleasure. So let's say you've decided to go without food for a day, you're fasting for a day. Well, throughout that entire day, every time you feel a hunger pang, instead of opening the fridge, you open the word of God. Or maybe you're going to go a week without Instagram. Well, every time you would open Instagram on your phone, you instead open the word of God. And what you're doing is over the course of the day or the week or the month or whatever, you are gradually training your heart to enjoy what's good so that that feeling of numbness or indifference to real pleasures eventually goes away. That's the point of fasting. It's not just this let's beat ourselves up discipline and let's be like the guy perched on the column because it hurts. No, it's because it teaches us to delight in the things where we've actually forgotten its taste. That's the point of it. In a great book on fasting, William Law, who's an English theologian, He says, although these abstinences do give some discomfort to the body, they so lessen the power of bodily appetites and passions, and they so increase our taste for spiritual joys, that even these severities, when practiced properly, add so much enjoyment to our lives. I love that. It so increases our taste for spiritual joys. The discipline of fasting is given for that purpose. Maybe you're thinking even now, you're like, maybe that's something that I need to learn to do with something in my life. Again, it doesn't have to just be food, but something that we feel is competing with the pleasures of God. You know what? I'm I'm just going to not touch that for a little while. And every time I want to touch that, I'm going to go to what is actually the true pleasures. And I'm not going to feel it as being a true pleasure in that moment, but I know that's going to come. I just got to retrain that. If you, New Year's Day is coming. If you start going to the gym for the first time in a very, very long time, please don't think after a week you're going to walk out looking like who you're dreaming of looking like. It takes time, but eventually it happens. That's what fasting does over time. That's one of the ways we teach ourselves to enjoy these pleasures. But the other one is found in our text in a little bit of a paradox. I don't know if you picked up on that when he says, come Buy and eat without money. Kind of strange, right? Kind of strange that he says, if he just said come and eat without money, it'd be fine, but come buy and eat without money. What what do we mean buy if we don't have any money? Well, what this is is an invitation to the king's table. God the great king is sitting and he's inviting his children to his table, but he is mentioning that there is a transaction that needs to take place. Something has to be purchased. Because you see, all of us, every single one of us in this room, either had or has currently a debt towards God. 
this, this idea of debt is one of the Bible's images that's used to communicate the idea of our sin, our evil, our, our rebellion, the fact that we've decided to go our own way and we decided to turn away from God. We've, in a sense, accumulated towards God this debt, our, our sin. It's kind of like you want to go to your favorite restaurant, but they don't let you in because of a previous unpaid bill. That's the problem at the king's table. We, we want to go eat at the table, but we have a huge unpaid bill. And my friends, it's infinitely higher than just a restaurant bill. This is an infinite debt from a lifetime of sin and rebellion towards God. So how do we get to that table? Well, that's where Jesus comes in. Because the Jesus in a manger that we just celebrated a week ago doesn't just stay in the manger, right? He grows up and he lives to die. He ends up at the end of his days on a cross where we hear him shout out his final words, this wonderful Greek word, tetelestai, which means literally paid in full. It's literally like for all those who come to Jesus and unite themselves to him and follow him and love him, it's like he takes a giant cosmic stamp and he puts that on that unpaid bill and he says, your debt is paid. Your place at the king's table is now open. So now come and buy without money because I bought it for you. The only way to take a seat at this table is if somebody else buys your spot. We can't buy our own. Unlike every other religious perspective out there, we can't buy our seat at that table with our good religious deeds and our church attendance and our prayers and our generosity. We cannot buy a seat at that table. We need someone to buy a seat for us. The invitation of the great king is to come at the table empty-handed. But that's our biggest problem, right? We want to take care of our sins ourselves. We want to erase our debt on our own. But the second we try to do that, what an insult to this great cosmic king. Can you imagine if Christmas, imagine you had some very wealthy relative that just gave you, you know, a million dollars. And you say, wow, thank you for that great gift. You know, I I think I have like four bucks here. No, five. Here you go. Thank you. That's ridiculous. Are you kidding? What What an insult to the gift. If that's the case in that situation, imagine it would be to someone who gives you a gift infinitely more valuable and you say, no, 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 I'd like to, let me, let me contribute something. Look at how much I've been praying. Look how much I've been doing all these things. That doesn't buy us a seat at the table. Someone who sits at the table freely does want to pray and worship and love and do justice and all these great things, but it comes as a response to the fact that they're already seated at the table because of what Jesus, the debt payer, did for us. He gives us that seat, and it's at that table that we taste those great pleasures. But if we try to get that seat, if we try to get them on our own with our full hands of good deeds, it's just not going to work. Nope, fool. Have to just accept what Jesus did for us and how his death purchases that place for us. That's the point of this text. But I hope, my friends, that you didn't miss at the end the slight warning that's given. The text finishes on a little bit of a somber note. Did you notice? Isaiah says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. You see, this is a limited time offer. Not because God is going to withdraw it, but because we don't know the time we have left. Seek the Lord while he is near, while he may be found. 
And how do we do that? The repetition in the text. Four times it says over and over, come, 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 with empty hands. Come, taste and see that the Lord is good. Test the pleasures of God and see how superior they are to everything else. Come, enjoy the finest of food, the richest of fare at the table of the king. Come, come, let go of these sad, inferior pleasures that seem to be so tantalizing and come and taste the right ones. Come and taste the best ones imaginable. Come, come, let's sit at the table of our great king. Let's pray. Father, every single one of us here without exception longs to experience more of this, more pleasure, more delight, a deeper sense of satisfaction. Thank you for so many great things you have given us in this life, and yet deep down we all know that there has to be more, and we want more. We ask that you would do a work in us that our hearts might be recalibrated to enjoy these things. Each of us to certain degrees, maybe we have done that. Maybe we have been stuffing ourselves with things that don't deeply satisfy. But we ask that you would help us to learn to love what is most lovely and to enjoy what is most enjoyable. Pray that you would speak to us and that we would leave here actually thinking of different ways that we can learn to do that. But then you, Spirit, would do the only thing that you can do, the, the, only, the part of this that only you can do, which is to change our hearts, to change our appetites, and to make them oriented towards you, that we might be joyful, deeply satisfied people. And that's our prayer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.